Welcome to Ontario Loud, the podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Sam Andrew. And I'm Grima Tolar-Kapoor. On today's pod, we will be talking about Ontario's reopening, Doug Ford's tour, and I want to check in on we because yes, we can fit all of that into a 30 to 40 minute pod. Get it, guys? Yes, we can. So good. So good, Chris. I really enjoy that. That I... You know, that's like it's the other career, you know, the, the path less traveled in comedy that I um, <laughs> think about all the time. Just scratching um, that itch. <laughs> how, how is everyone doing? Not bad. It's a, glo- it's a gloomy day here today, but it's fine otherwise. Yeah. There's, there's something about like any day in quarantine where you just can't like go outside for like long stretches of time that just like makes it makes it like hit home more. But I don't know. Um, good banter. Second, <laughs> <laughs> the darkness of reality. <laughs> I do feel like the winter, like when it's short days, like dark, cold, like, and if we're still working from home, it's going to be harder. I'm just like thinking ahead to those days and not, yeah, not excited. No, I, I, I've definitely been doing uh, a little bit of like. Like, I'm just going to do as much enjoying of things as I can right now before people start inevitably, like, fucking up the recovery a little bit and, like, going to bars and clubs and, you know, and we're, I'll, I'll have had a lot of enjoyment in this time and I'll go back and I'll be like, you know what, those were the days. <laughs> when we're all out of Netflix shows to watch. I know. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> coming soon. <laughs> is coming soon. <laughs> just clip shows for days. All right. A couple things before we dive in. If you have not heard this week's interview with uh, Christopher Zabene, uh, go listen to it after this pod. Him and Alvin and Alexi got into some really interesting discussions on whether uh, on political parties, whether it's better to have big or small tent parties, um, how leadership elections influence party behavior, how democratic they really are. Um, it was a really fascinating discussion. Uh, definitely challenged some of my ideas, uh, even after someone who's involved in the political process for uh, pretty much my whole life. Uh, and uh, last bit of housekeeping, mailbag. It is happening. You have one week to get us your questions. Do not miss it. You can send them to OntarioLadMail at gmail.com or on Twitter at OntarioLad. I'm not going to lie, Grima, Sam, I am going to tell you a secret right now our mailbag is not overflowing i know it's shocking shocking <laughs> uh, if you send us something however if you're listening to this podcast and you're like i like this podcast i have a question we will read it on the next podcast at this rate i don't know if it's just the summer but i know there's lots of you that listen to this and haven't submitted uh so definitely you know consider it there's some great ones from kate graham that i saw on twitter i'm looking forward to getting into those exactly yeah kate has the the field covered right now which you know actually is like is not a bad thing we love kate graham on top of the very important summer goal of me not having to do self-directed research in late july we love knowing what is on your mind it also helps us to shape the pod give us an insight as to you know what you want us to talk about so do it uh okay so diving into our first topic this week and actually starting today as you were listening to this pod many parts of ontario are moving to drumroll please stage three of ontario's reopening 
This will mean that most businesses will get to reopen in Ontario with uh, exceptions and specific rules. Indoor gathering restrictions will be lifted from 10 to 50. Outdoor gatherings can be held with up to 100 people. But most importantly, all of those gatherings, all of that is still subject to physical distancing requirements. On the list of places we won't be able to go are places like amusement parks, buffets, bars, where there is uh, dancing occurring. A lot of areas where people gather in sort of close proximity and can't help it really. Also, notably, most major urban centers will not be advancing to stage three today. So uh, Toronto, Hamilton, Ottawa, those kinds of places. Mayor John Tory indicated, however, that he thought that for Toronto, stage three might not be that far off. And we remember with stage two, it was only a week later that uh, Toronto joined the rest of the province. So I'd like to remind listeners that this is not, in fact, the end of the government's phases and stages. We are, in, in fact, in stage three of phase two of reopening. Ontario. Uh, So there are presumably more confusing steps to come in this process. But overall, uh, a step forward indicating our COVID recovery is going well overall. At the same time, Premier Ford has taken this opportunity to announce and go on an eight-week tour of the province, 38 ridings in total, to say thank you to Ontarians, or as opposition leaders have called it, campaigning for re-election while lots of things are still on fire. Uh, The Premier has said he'll he'll continue his daily news conferences on the road as well. Uh, So First, maybe just touching on the policy here, lots of COVID fear still out there in Ontario, case rates spiking in the U.S. Do we think this is a good move on the province? Is it the right move? You know, what are you guys, what are your guys' reaction to being in uh, stage three, phase two? I've, I have lots of conflicting thoughts. Like I sort of get the desire, especially outside of the, you know, kind of GTA Windsor areas where um, cases, caseloads really are very low. You know, I can imagine that they're hearing from people in, you know, Northern Ontario, rural Ontario, why can't we reopen when we haven't had um, a case in weeks? Um, And, you know, that the financial pressure uh, that a lot of these owners, especially of like, you know, the hospitality and tourism industry are facing, um, uh, I can totally see why they've arrived at the conclusion that they have. Um, and I do hope, fingers crossed, that people are responsible. You know, I have been really comforted by anecdotally seeing the mask wearing go way up uh, around me when I've been shopping and sort of out and about, even in the elevators, like in my condo, like mask wearing is way up. And so Canadians are a nation of rule followers. Hopefully this all goes well. I do think, though, there's a real risk for the government that if this does go sideways, which, you know, lots of countries and, and other jurisdictions that have opened up bars, especially have found them as hotbeds of um, transmission. And um, I think if this does go sideways and it creates another surge in cases, and especially before schools open in September, when there's all this anxiety about parent from parents about not uh, having a you know, realistic plan for schools and it kind of setting that back. I think they're like walking into a buzzsaw because um, people, I think, will remember this kind of bars versus schools um, choice that people are painting. Uh, so it, I think it's a real risk for them. I understand why they did it, but. Yeah, I, I'd say that I'm also equally as conflicted. And sometimes when we think about the province, we don't put it in con- in like a broader context. And it's important to remember that Ontario is so, so, so big. And um, in different regions are having different, um, are are not seeing the levels of transmission that 
even Toronto, Peel, or Windsor, Essex is is facing, even though the rates in Toronto and Peel at least um, have come down somewhat. I will say though, like this pressure between opening up businesses and and maintaining and helping, especially small business owners maintain some sort of financial viability. I feel like we're we're making these decisions because we're not making other public policy decisions. So uh, the federal government is, has basically said that CERB is going to end um, or the first phase or CERB will be phasing out um, by the end of the summer. And, and there's no sort of offset from the province to sort of say, to Ontarians and to business owners, you know, even if CERB isn't available to you, if you do not feel comfortable either reopening or going back to work, we've got your back. And I think you can see this in like a couple of very acute areas that have always been areas of high transmission in the province. This includes uh, the way in which we refuse to treat migrant workers with any type of dignity. And so it should not be a surprise to anybody to see that transmission is not stabilizing or transmission of the virus is not stabilizing in areas where where there is high population of migrant agriculture workers. We saw yesterday an announcement on, long t- on um, long-term care and, you know, there's a lot of debate on whether the actual announcement on the increases in beds is actually an increase or is it just a rehashing of the former government's commitments plus some by this government last year. But really, I think it's, you know, we've heard nothing about the change in structure for long-term care that many people have been calling for. So move away from private care through to more public care, adequately actually paying um, long-term care workers and and nurses and PSWs and really the frontline care workers who have carried a lot of the brunt of the first wave of the virus. And there is no policy or public policy response to support them uh, moving forward. So I get it from a broader general public perspective, but I'm still mystified that even after all of this time, we we can't seem to address the very acute problems that we know have led to higher rates of transmission in the province. Totally. And maybe tying uh, those two points together, one thing that totally just hit home for me this week where the two biggest stories have been moving forward on the current plan to reopen Ontario and the lack of a place in that plan for schools really reminded me and sort of made me ask the question like who is the who are these phases who does this current plan the government is on speak to and it is all about businesses and bars and restaurants and the and you know how soon can we get back to getting our haircut and you know um you know i can't go to a buffet but i can go to the restaurant down the street and all of that i'm like don't want to denigrate that but like it, it sort of seems like the pins were set on a particular on a particular approach that spoke to business at the beginning of the pandemic and as the needs of this pandemic have evolved in particular as we approach September where, you know, kids are going to need to go back to school, but they probably can't gather in the way that we've set up our education system for the last, uh, I don't know, like 100 years. There seems to be a lot less confidence at speaking to the um, the needs of the systems that the government directly oversees and directly manages. Um, uh, so 
maybe moving on into the politics a little bit, want to know what people think of uh, the tour. I think when I look at this, this is kind of the most brazen political play we've seen from uh, the PCs so far. They're starting in NDP territory in Windsor-Essex. Um, do we think this is a good look for uh, Doug Ford? As he, uh, I think today he got his hair cut. I saw some pics coming out of that. Whereas I think they, they seem to be a little bit more chaste in there. Um, political ambitions on the crisis board. This is kind of the most political move I've seen them make in all, probably since the beginning of the pandemic. I agree that it shows, I think, a pivot in approach. Um, I don't think it surprises me. And I don't think it's, I don't think that's a partisan thing. Their liberals, when they were in power, would do these tours um, with the premier as well. Um, so it doesn't particularly bother me, I think. I think it is a choice in, you know, this climate of hyper attention to provincial politics way more than certainly we've ever experienced, I think, to to kind of make that decision to get outside of, you know, the the press conference in Toronto, you know, approach of serious governance to a to a more visiting and folksy look and feel but i think yeah uh, it's also i'm sure to promote people getting out and about too and you know the the reopening of ontario so i thought some of the takes uh this week were a bit over the top like it, it's you know governments are political animals and they're gonna do politics from time to time Oh, yeah. Particularly the people who are like, he should be in the legislature. And I feel like I think very few people believe that you can't work on the road or the job of the premier doesn't actually involve going out and talking to people. I just wanted to briefly touch on the polling that might have informed the move, which is uh, surprised me quite a bit. There's a Main Street research poll uh, that came out that basically showed the PCs uh, enjoying um, substantial uh, leads in um, most age in pretty much all age groups uh, except for youth and uh, all parts of the province except for Toronto and um, that was uh, you know helped explain to me sort of you know they're riding high right now they want to double down um, but to something uh, you were saying earlier uh, Sam uh, this further latches the premier's image in my mind onto the image of reopening getting out and about in this moment which is really positive and great and hard not to feel good about after we've been cooped up in our homes but like you know if we're in september and there's not a real plan for schools and like parents on mass have to choose between looking after their kids and going to work um i think or there's a surge in cases i think it looks like a riskier play for me so um an, an interesting approach and in the, but they seem to really be dialing down on this positivity yeah, I agree with that. And and just on the schools thing um, and its relationship to, I think, people's sense of how they've managed this crisis so far, people are giving all levels of government, you know, including the federal government, who are also, you know, experiencing a surge in their polling, um, a huge benefit of the doubt in what was a crazy and is continues to be a crazy time. Um, and, you know, schooling didn't go particularly well from March till June, the online experience didn't live up to people's expectations, but people kind of understood that government had no choice. They were dealing with the cards that they were dealt. There will not be the same level of forgiveness if September is as chaotic as all 
uh, signs say it will be. Um, they continue to kind of double down on no new money for new staff, um, which, uh, to your point, politically, I really continue to be mystified by. Um, we'll see if it holds up for another, whatever, a month and a half. Um, until then, uh, I sort of can't see how it will, but um, uh, that, that, that continues to be this weird wild card where they're just really... I think mismanaging to ensure folks under like understand the stakes of, of, of what you're saying, Sam, you can't put kids in a building uh, in the same configuration you used to. So if you need more classes, if you need kids somewhere five days a week, you need to hire more teachers. And um, there is just no way for school boards out of it, uh, out of that very physical actual problem. If you're acting to properly socially distance kids, I feel like it's just a basic math problem. If you take, the assumption that you can only have 15 kids in a classroom and the average right now is between 20 and 25 depending on the grade level you can't have the same number of adults like it just doesn't work and so like i just everyone can understand that even if you ignore the space problem and it just assume that the classrooms will find themselves through timetabling or whatever you don't have enough adults and so I, I just don't understand what they're doing. It's really frustrating. And uh, I feel like the, a lot of the news coverage of this hasn't really gotten into that core problem. Like the TDSB made a splash this week when they announced that they would need to avoid this uh, crappy situation. They would need money for more staff, $250 million, or else they would need to sort of cut whole basically like cut French education in its entirety and reduce the school day, which uh, I think caused a lot of people a lot of consternation. So I'm hoping that as these plans from school boards come out that are just like bad plans, not the fault of the school board, but the fault of lack of resources, the public starts to understand that this is an issue. So maybe last thing uh, in COVID news, the federal government announced uh, $19 billion in funding to municipalities, testing uh, for childcare, for contract tracing, and more. Uh, this came um, after a long series of no negotiations, um, and uh, the federal government uh, aid, this $19 billion, comes with uh, restrictions, so the province has provinces have to spend the money on these things. This was an increase of $5 billion from the $14 billion that was previously being discussed. And this comes after a week of big city mayors uh, like John Tory in Toronto announcing plans for massive service cuts due to budget shortfalls. Municipalities, I will remind uh, listeners, are not allowed to run big budget deficits. They, um, they have to balance. And so uh, service cuts come uh, if they don't have cash. So friends, why is I mean, I, I wrote the question down here. Why is federalism so fucked? <laughs> um, uh, I will say for context as well, Ontario is set to get $7 billion of this uh, total uh, and Toronto's budget deficit is $1.3 billion. But yeah, like this has been a problem the whole time. It's taken us a long time to get here. Um, I, what do you guys think of the package? I mean, I think it's a lot, a lot of things that you're trying to do with what seems like a lot of money, and I'm not saying that it's not, but if you want to keep municipalities whole, ensure that there is adequate supply of testing and contact tracing, ensure that um, there is childcare for parents to go back to work, um, and ensure that children are safe while they're in childcare, and many other things. Um, I, I, it's it's a start, but I, I think that, you know, there's like the question of it, why is our, our federalism so fucked is kind of just 
it took a it took decades of dysfunction um to get to this point and now we're really starting to see that these like big injections of money help to just cover up a a wound but do not do anything very foundationally to actually um to actually rectify the issues. And so we know for decades that at least between the federal government and the provinces, transfers on a whole host of things, whether it's on health, whether it's on infrastructure, whether it's on housing or social services, have always been a huge area of not only political debate, but the provinces never seem to get enough out of the feds that they actually need to fulfill the responsibilities that they have to their their public and their populations. And then we, we run into this really weird situation where municipalities have the largest areas of responsibility um, in terms of service delivery, are responsible for most of the frontline services that people receive, but have little way of either generating the revenue they need or have very little say in the FedProv negotiations that go on to actually get the money that they need. All that to say, I think it's a, it's a start, um, but like everything uh, that COVID has shown, we've got a lot of work ahead of us to fix the fiscal federalism, either game of chicken or hot potato that we've been playing for decades that is just not serving people across the country well uh, i agree with all of that i think uh just like a few quick reflections i think ontario got its way in getting it basically doled out as per capita right they basically got ontario's quote-unquote fair share which um uh, ontario does not always get right in in for lots of variously good reasons. But anyway, I thought for this, that's an Ontario win. So credit to them for, for negotiating that. And maybe I'll just like pick out um, the sick day piece in particular, I think getting the provinces to sign on to 10 days of sick leave uh, for employees, paid sick leave. It's light on details. Uh, so we're like, we're going to see how that rolls out. But um I kind of think like CERB is creating this now kind of renewed pressure around reform of social assistance and calls for basic income. Hopefully, as people experience working and being able to rely on, you know, real paid sick leave, uh, if that is in fact what happens, will create pressure for, you know, broader reform to our social structures post-COVID. I think um, I think that's promising and I think kudos to the feds for getting the provinces to sign on to that because um, I'm sure that was no easy feat. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've just seen so many, like every single time you see like a former prime minister or like a former premier or like senior staff like interviewed on like CBC Power and Politics, a lot of them are like these like conferences about federal provincial negotiations and like the relationship between a prime minister and a premier landing a particular deal or how do you satisfy the needs of uh, of Quebec you know it creates these sort of dramatic political situations but you know yeah at like to your point grandma like in a in a situation where we really 
need rapid responses to to local challenges. Uh, it's local public health units in Ontario that are on the front lines of this. You know, most of the money exists at the federal government. The process that I have heard lionized and it's storied and I'm sure it's very exciting, but I've heard throughout my entire life following politics has just never looked so out of date. Uh, and it's also really hard to like revisit this. Like, I don't know, what if there's another huge outbreak and we need more money? I'm sure they will discuss more money, but like it is, you know, it's hard to revisit things like this as well. So mm-hmm. um, I have a, uh, I, it, I've just never, I, reflecting on the process here, I, I'm glad that they landed somewhere. And, but, you know, we knew that municipalities would need money back in like the beginning of this, from the first days of this crisis, you know, why did it take months and like literally John Tory threatening to cut the budget, which, you know, we can talk about what kind of a political game that was on his part uh, by the end of summer, you know, to actually signal to the people that, you know, the sky wasn't going to fall. Well, want to, because, you know, we're people producing a political podcast, we can't not talk about we. Then one last couple, our last couple of minutes on the We Charity stuff, because boy, has this really spiraled since we last talked about it. I won't spend a lot of time overviewing all of the details, uh, but last time we talked about We, we focused on why the government might choose to sole source a program like this and outsource program delivery um, to a third party. Uh, and we kind of lamented the issues management here. Since then, the government has cut ties with We, and it's come to light that members of the Prime Minister's family, notably his mom, but his brother, Bill Morneau's daughter, have involvement with We, but specifically members of the Prime Minister's family have received hundreds of thousands of dollars in speaking fees, which contradicts a previous statement, and that the Prime Minister did not recuse himself from the cabinet decision on this. So, Once again, the Trudeau government finds itself being pursued by the Ethics Commissioner and two parliamentary uh, committees, one of which uh, is going on at the time of recording. And we've seen and will see a lot of reporting on this. Uh, Liberals are saying it's another case of uh, a Hillary's email. It's kind of media frenzy over nothing. Opposition are trying to draw a line between this, the government's other ethical breaches. And so I'm just curious for us, maybe, how have the ensuing events since the last time we talked about it impacted our take on this issue? And, you know, what would we advise you know a listener who wants to be smart about what it's going to be a very spicy scandal be smart to pay attention to so i've been thinking about this a lot and i've been thinking about lots of people make fun of like policy folks about thinking about the venn diagram but i've been thinking about a venn diagram between like government the nonprofit, civil society sector and public service and industry of course is in there but the roles and responsibility of of each sector and where they overlap and don't overlap and in a moment of crisis what is it that governments can sort of do to uh, to allay some of the responsibility and sort of work with partners in industry or in civil society um, or the public service, um, perhaps not as partners, but as sort of arms to get the work that they want done. Um, how does that all work in a time of crisis? And you know, before recording, we were watching um, some of the proceedings at Finance Committee. And what really struck me was, A, there is, I'd say, a political imperative to have a program that would enable uh, youth to provide some sort of service. And this this sort of, this butt up against, though, a really real issue that was known in mid-April that we were facing one of the biggest economic 
um, downturns of of modern history. And so we and so the idea that there would be a program, a billion dollar program almost that would help um, students and young people um, sort of provide service or or volunteer work, quote unquote, in a time of of economic downturn, just don't think sits well with anybody that uh, thinks about public policy and economics issues, especially if the government is then going to try is trying to provide a bursary or stipend for the work that is done. So I'd say that that issue is there. And then there's this tension between delivering a program of this size really quickly and following through all of the, you know, really real directives and, um, you know, I'll be careful to not call it a contract or a transfer payment agreement, but rather a contribution agreement as uh, ADM Wernick put it today in her finance committee testimony. I just think that there's this tension between getting things done really quickly versus following all of the directives that may or may not exist. And in this case, I'm not suggesting that the directives that were that needed to be followed were not followed. I think that's still being uncovered. But when politically something like this becomes a scandal, what it does to the public service is that it just creates additional layers of accountability that need to be met when a future circumstance like this comes to bear. And in the future, when there is a situation like this in which the public service has to deliver quickly, they're not going to be able to deliver quickly because there are all of these other measures that that they need to sort of live up to and accountability mechanisms that they need to live up to. But in talking about the roles and responsibilities of different sectors in our community and the inherent tensions that, that governments inevitably butt up against when they're trying to do something quickly. I think the tension here is that while the public servants did what they could to deliver as quickly as political leadership asked them to on the program, they had no idea about the different conflict of interests that existed. And so a question is whether the public service should have sussed this out. And I don't know how much um, public servants can do in a very tight time frame. No, and I think to put at the feet of public servants what were kind of political errors is unfair, right? And so yeah. um, I think the whole thing is unfortunate. I think that they're doing the right thing now by sort of apologizing regularly and often at various levels. Uh, Christia Freeland was out today again, reiterating the apology. Um, so I think they know that they've messed up. And I think undoubtedly that the liberal kind of issues management team, as they've pulled back the layers of this, you know, with uh, Maggie Trudeau's payments and Bill Morneau's daughter and, uh, you know, now even that another Wernick was the ADM <laughs> responsible, like the layers of how this issue has sort of gotten away from them, I'm sure they didn't anticipate at the time. Uh, and there's just all the we stuff by itself, right? Uh, it, you know, that it's always, not always, it's been an organization that has kind of come under some uh, scrutiny uh, for, you know, interesting practices i'll put it um before and so um this 
probably should have been predicted. They were obviously ripe to make a mistake eventually uh, in this chaos, right? Um, it's it's too bad that this is what it is. But I think to your point, Chris, like it's is this SNC? No, right? Like who? Like I think the Trudeau celebrity is kind of already baked into Canadians' perceptions of it. So I don't think this really makes it worse, right? And so how much this will have a lasting effect I, I i don't know i maybe i'm maybe i'm biased but i don't i don't see this having legs for months and years no 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 i think the only thing is if the opposition can use it to further um a narrative um about trudeau and liberal mismanagement what's actually been so fascinating is just to see both the opposition and uh, you know the media, cough the Globe and Mail specifically, go back just go back to the, like the like the comfort zone of sort of like the like the SNC tone. I actually legitimately don't know how in this context uh, the public is going to absorb you know months of or react to months of you know committee hearings on a scandal that is at its core pretty hard to understand and the government seems to have already moved to fix. Um, they're going to have a bad day when the ethics commissioner report comes out, I think, um, highly likely. Uh, it seems from the te- uh, from the testimony as though they may have used uh, some of the tools that are available to governments to get things done quickly, to get them done quickly, but whether the cover, you know, it will be in front of the whole public to judge whether that was the appropriate course of action. And that's not something I think any government wants to, you know, you don't really want the public poking around in, in the methods of things a lot of the time. In September or the August, you know, when this report comes out, um, folks are have still have a lot in their plates, which I expect they will. I don't know how well they're going to react to, you know, um, Pierre Polyevre on TV saying, like, you know, saying that this is the thing that we must care about right now. I, it, it, I could be wrong. I mean, you know, I have wear my bias on my sleeve, but I polling tells us that the COVID response is what leaders and parties popularity is tracking with right now and this might be a little bit of a dent it's a reminder of what the people don't like about the liberal government but like i don't really see this being the thing that like you know takes them down by any stretch i also loved being reminded of the very specific agreement tools that were picked uh you know that don't require the sole source i think Mm -hmm. if anything you know like that is a that is a tool to your point, Grima, that will not be available to future uh, governments as a result of this. Um, you know when potentially we might need to move quickly. So um, a loss uh, in the you know for future ministers' offices and civil servants to you know get things done quickly. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back next week. We'll be talking with Robin Edgar about a green recovery. Uh, really important, you know, and a bit of a hopeful topic. We'll be back with the news on Friday. Um, Ontario Loud is myself, Chris Martin, Alvin Tejo, Alexi White, Sam Andry, Green Mattel Kapoor. We're supported by amazing volunteers and Harmon Mundy and Aisha Anwar. I'm serious. Mail us about the mailbag. You can get us on Twitter at, at OntarioLoud, OntarioLoudMail, gmail.com. 
Also, thank you to our Patreon supporters. You can head to patreon.com slash if you like what you're hearing. Uh, it takes a lot to do put this podcast together, and your contributions make it possible. So, super big thank you to you guys. Have a great weekend.